0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we search the Internet for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. This week, I'm very pleased to say we have Martha Howell on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Commerce Before Capitalism in Europe, 1300 to 1600. As I told Martha, we were chatting before... We began recording, I was trained as a Western European early modernist, so I had actually read some of the literature that she cites in the book, Um, I read it 20 years ago, so a lot has been done since then, but I was very excited to read this book. And one, one, of, one of the most interesting things to me in world history is the origins of, of Western capitalism and industrial capitalism, so I read a lot of books on this topic. And this one is, is terrific. Uh, it says some things which uh, I think that um, when you hear Martha talk about them, you'll say, yeah, that's, that, that makes sense. It makes more sense than, than what we thought, but, but we'll talk about that in, in due course. So, Martha, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: Great. So, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, sure. I teach at Columbia University. I've been teaching there since 1989. For 10 years before that, I taught at Rutgers University in um, New Brunswick, um, and uh, I was trained at Columbia or got my Ph.D. at Columbia. I was living in New York when I decided to go to graduate school and was living on the Upper West Side, and so I went to Columbia. Um, I got interested in early modern or late medieval early modern history because before I went to graduate school, after college and before graduate school, I worked in finance in New York and did research um, on the financial economy. Um, I had gotten that job because I did a lot of economics in my undergraduate work and had lived in Europe for a year in Germany. And the combination of doing that research, which I was doing just because I needed a job, uh... and my experience in europe and my undergraduate training which I concentrated on uh... history politics and economics uh... Um, made me interested in the early history of the western commercial economy and so when i went to graduate school i intended to explore those interests but i had really no idea how i was going to do it it was also this was in the uh... early seventies when i began graduate school Uh, was the height of the women's movement, and I was very involved in those politics, and so also wanted to do something on women's history, and that's what drove me to graduate school, what informed my master's and my PhD thesis, my first two books, and led eventually to the book we're talking about today. So Mm -hmm. that's my background.
0: Mm -hmm. The, the kind of economic history that you do, if I can call it economic history, is um, it borders on on cultural history. I mean, I told, yes. you, I told you again, I worked with Jan de Vries, and Jan, Jan is a big numbers guy. Uh, okay. And uh, th- this book doesn't have really a lot of numbers. It's more about the way in which economic uh, realities changed economic concepts, and then those concepts change people's lives.
1: That's right. And that's the approach to economic history that I take. I do... Try um, And you don't see it too much in this book, but in some of my earlier book, I try to take seriously the skills of traditional economic history of the of sort, mm-hmm. right? Counting rigorous analysis using some of the analytical tools that come from the modern, what sometimes is called the bourgeois economy or the modern capitalist economy, to think about the relations between market production, production for subsistence, i.e. production that people do just to consume what they produce rather than to sell it. Um, And those analytical constructs have been very useful to me, but what I what I try to do and I think a lot of this comes from my training and my commitment to women's history, oddly, which really needs to be done as a kind of cultural through a cultural lens. Um, because you need to understand first of all how people imagine their gender, their relationship to what they construct as the opposite sex, uh what uh, the relationship is between one's self-identification as a gendered person and sexuality. Those kinds of things have uh, necessarily framed a lot of women's history. And once you start thinking about that, you start thinking about culture more generally. So I started to think very early in my career about why did people think that the best way to value goods was by the price that was determined by supply demand is that natural or is that a constructed um, way to think about exchange there are other terms upon which people exchange goods. they give gifts they um, barter uh, according to logics that are not easily reduced to some approximation of what might be a market value, etc. So those are the kinds of things that um, made me really try to get underneath the kinds of um, analyses that rely upon modern understandings of why people produce, what they produce, why people consume and the, you know, the choices they make about consumption. Does mm-hmm. that
0: make sense? Yeah, I know that makes perfect sense, and it's a nice segue into my next question, which you have partially already answered. And why did you write this particular book? One thing I was interested in, Commerce Before Capitalism in Europe, I don't know if Jan told me this or not, but I think he might have said there was capitalism in 15th century Flanders or something. So, um, so uh, go ahead.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's one of many, many people that have said there's capitalism in this this period first of all, you have to decide how you're going to define capitalism, right? Yeah. Um, I use a fairly rigorous definition of capitalism to distinguish it from market production. If if I can be technical for a minute, um, every culture beyond the most uh, basic in world history that we know anything about has had some kind of market production, some kind of market exchange. In other words um... people have either you know taken surplus from their production and traded it uh, it, it with, uh, with people who had surplus from their production or who were willing to trade their labor for those goods on terms that could be approximated by some third uh... unit of measure Um in lots of societies, that shells furs uh... things like that or some money type of thing right so uh, but a lot of, I think, um, a lot of historians have um, t- equated capitalism with um, a sort of um, um, you know, expanded version of that kind of market production. So when you get people who really live by buying and selling, who negotiate the buying and selling for people who have surplus to sell or who want to buy the surplus of somebody else, they have tended to call those early embryonic forms of capitalism. Um I think that then what that does is just make the whole world, including <laughs> you know including Greece way back you know with Plato mm-hmm. and all those guys, right proto capitalists mm-hmm. because there was there was there were active markets in Athens, mm-hmm. right so uh, we need either it's a term that makes no sense that so we should just throw it out and we should stop using it, um, or there is some analytical sort of ideal type in a Weberian sense, if that's not too technical mm-hmm. a term, no. that, um, that we can use to productively think about what changed, what is distinctive about the modern Western economy, and now, of course, a global economy that has taken different shape, but can still probably be uh, understood in terms of a definition of capitalism that I like. And that definition has many elements, but the central one is that people produce for sale. In other words, they don't produce for other reasons and then sell their surplus. They get up in the morning, they brush their teeth, and they think, what can I make that I can sell? And they don't care what it is. Um, obviously, they're constrained by what's available to them and, you know, the information they have about the market and what kinds of resources they have and all that kind of thing. But the object is to sell. Mm -hmm. And the object is to make a profit on that sale, a profit Mm -hmm. that can be measured monetarily. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they live in a society in which they are compelled to invest a huge portion of those profits, normally in production itself, but very often also, particularly as you get more advanced versions of it, in a political, socio-political infrastructure that allows them to keep and to expand that money, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the whole object of production becomes making a profit that can be reinvested. Why do they reinvest? Well, first of all, they want more. But why do they want more? Because, and this is key, if they don't reinvest either in ways to protect themselves from competitors or to be more productive producers so that the guy down the street who can make a shoe cheaper than you doesn't drive you out of business. We live in a world in which that is so evidently going on all over the world, that that will be familiar, right, mm-hmm. that, um, that they have to reinvest mm-hmm. and um, they have to make a profit. And so um, they have many, many ways of making a profit, but one of them is by exploiting labor. Another is by finding cheaper and cheaper raw materials with which to make the goods, et cetera, et cetera. These kinds of um, incentives or compulsions will be familiar to anybody thinking about the global economy right now. Mm -hmm. So that is, when I talk about capitalism, I'm talking about, a world in which those are the logics that govern production. Okay?
0: Yeah, so then I guess I would say that it, it becomes very different to say that almost any predominantly peasant economy that is, uh, that is 90 or 95% people who work the land in a subsistence way could be capitalist.
1: No, they're not capitalists. Yeah, it couldn't be capitalists, no, yeah. No, they're not capitalists. I mean, they might be They, they might be involved in the market. Mm-hmm. And so there are all these books, I mean, very, very good books and useful books, written, you know, calling the market activities of peasants and mm-hmm. peasants in the market and all that. And obviously, that's important for the history of pre-capitalism. But mm-hmm. that doesn't make them proto-capitalists.
0: Right. So then would you say the people that you deal with in this book, and they're predominantly in, in the lowlands in Flanders, places like this, would you say they are? I mean, you, you sort of explicitly reject the notion that they're proto-capitalists. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Well, I, you know, there's a little bit of... Um in-your-face kind of claim, (laughs) you know, uh, uh, about that. I mean, obviously, I'm going against a huge body of Uh, of scholarship. Um, And so what I wanted to do was get people to pay attention um, and say, wait a minute, I'm really asking you to think about the ways in which these people didn't behave the way they should. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of books written about that. But the way that that the behavior of people that are supposed to be these proto-capitalists, that doesn't fit the model, uh, the way it's explained is typically one of two ways. One is... Well, they're really not capitalists. They're really traditional elites, and they're um, protecting their inherited privileges. And so they really don't, you know, they want to participate in the market because there's money to be made, but they really aren't playing the game because they have political power that provides them revenues, etc., 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 that they don't want to lose, and so they're resistant, to the logic of the future, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one argument. That's a hard argument to make when you're talking about somebody who's a merchant living in Bruges, right? Mm-hmm. So the other argument that's often made is that they didn't quite get it.
0: <laughs> that was pretty funny. Go ahead. <laughs> right. That,
1: no, that they were very smart, but not smart enough. Yeah. You know, they still had one foot in the past, and they were bound by old ideas. Yeah. Um, that tradition weighed heavily. That they were constrained by the church. Um, you know, things like that, and. What that does is sort of reduce these people to people that aren't as smart as we are. Right,
0: right.
1: And, you know, there's no question when you read what these guys did, and, and you, you you and I talked before the show began about a little bit about your work in Russia, when you read about some of the merchants that got on these leaky boats and yeah. made it all the way to Muscovy, these were amazing people.
0: Mm-hmm. They, right? certainly, they certainly were. Um,
1: yeah, and well, so, you know, we can't treat them as people that didn't know what they were doing.
0: Right. No, I, I agree with that completely. And part of the, the, part of the difficulty has to do with a kind of ahistorical understanding of rationality, because we think of rationality. This is sort of Marx. This is really Marx, where Marx said, you know, we naturalize our world. And we say, well, it's the whole world. And we yes. think to ourselves, well, everybody, operates ration- everybody who operates like we do is rational. Everybody who doesn't isn't. And parts of your book, I don't know if you ever watched this, but it reminded me of a certain episode's in the show called The Antique Roadshow. Have you ever watched that? i watched. Right. Well, there's always this moment where the guy comes up or the gal comes up with a bobble of some sort. You know, it's an old jug or something. And the guy says, it's worth a zillion dollars. Um, <laughs> but don't sell it because it's an heirloom. And, you, and the woman or whoever has it is like, looks like a you know doe in the light so she doesn't know what to do. Because this is an heirloom. You know, it's a picture of her grandpa or something. Yeah. She doesn't want to sell it, you know, but she look at all that money. Look at that big figure. And she's kind of caught right there between these two... Tools, yeah, I mean, like you know, it's like it, and people would say, "Well, it's irrational if she doesn't sell it." But, no, but, that, that, it, but that's it is rational. Good, yeah, yeah,
1: that's a good example. I mean, there are two, there are two different rationalities competing, right? Yeah, and so um, you know, so that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. So yeah. Um, anyway.
0: So that's one of the one of the things that your book sort of impressed upon me is, is it's important to talk about the history of the way people think about things. Uh-huh. I mean, we do actually think about things as. As fungible. Everything is fungible. I mean, you'll occasionally see one of these moments in a movie where somebody says, I'll give you any amount of money for that. And the guy says, it's not for sale at any price. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and, But in this culture, there were lots of things that weren't for sale at any price, and nor did they even think to sell them. Um, so, so maybe you could talk a little bit about in the very first part of the book, you talk about, and you put this in the sort of movable, immovable property and how they dealt with this. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, Um, I have this chapter called "movable and immovable." The Northern European law, which was based on custom, but all. Across northern Europe there was their sort of shared basic assumptions about the nature of property which divided it into they called it by different terms and it's quite complicated and technical but roughly movable and immovable immovable property was roughly property that didn't move and of course what everybody had in mind when they used that word was land because it doesn't move right but the the sort of larger meaning of immovable was that it is a source of wealth rather than wealth itself. In other words, that it produces wealth, and it produces wealth in perpetuity. Because it produces wealth in perpetuity, as land was imagined to do, and as it mostly does, um, it could not be, it did not belong to an individual because it was a perpetual a resource. It belonged to the family unit that could claim the revenues from that property. And it wasn't always just the family. I mean, most pieces of land and just to get a little bit more complicated, the properties that attached to the land, the mills, the streams, the fish that swam in the stream, the trees that grew on the on the land, the, lots of times the cattle or the sheep or whatever it was that fed on the land, even under strictly feudal conditions where you had uh, enslaved labor or enserfed labor, the people that worked the land, all of that was considered um, uh, an immovable. And there were many people that had claims to the revenues that came from that. Some of it the church claimed. Some of it the family claimed. Some of it maybe neighbors or a lord uh, claimed. And so that property was uh, not easily bought and sold. Um, If it was bought and sold, it caused all sorts of cultural problems that the law tried to resolve. By finding ways to substitute other property with the same characteristics for the property that had been sold, um, one of the ways that one of the most um, common ways to handle the problem of how do you sell this stuff, how do you transfer it for money if you need money now and you don't want to have the revenue in perpetuity um, uh, was to borrow against it in a complicated form of something called a rent um those then could substitute for the property itself, and but they, too, were considered immovable. Once you owned a rent, which would be the income that would be produced by this property over time uh, because you had bought the right to those revenues from somebody else who had originally owned them so that person could have a lump sum up front to go do something else with, that was considered immovable. Then once you owned it, it entered your property that could not easily be transferred out of your family line um so that was one of the ways they did it there were other ways now what i did in the chapter of this book was look at the law of ghent which was one of the it was the biggest city in Flanders, um the second largest to paris north of the alps in the 14th century it was a great industrial center bigger than bruges um, etc. So very, very important city. Records have survived of its customary law, which allowed me to trace the way they treated movable goods and immovable goods over the course of three centuries. Um, and it was fascinating because of all the places in the world you would have found people buying and selling everything like mad. Um, Ghent, the Ghent Law changed slowly, uh, contradictorily, uh, clumsily over three centuries to finally achieve a plan by which immovable goods could be bought and sold fairly easily, but it took them three centuries to do it. Three centuries during which, remember, this is the most important industrial city north of um, the Loire, or in northern Europe. It was, you know, a, a world, a world city for Western Europe, which. In those days, counted as the world for Western Europeans. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was just very interested in watching that process and then trying to understand why it was so difficult for them. To just say, "Hey, it's only you know, it's a piece of land or it's a house. Why can't I just buy and sell it and take the money and do something more useful with it? I'm after all a proto capitalist, <laughs> <laughs> right?" <laughs> but uh, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. So that that was that was that investigation, and um, you know, it's interesting that. This is sort of a little bit on the side, um, you know. My book has been reviewed uh, largely by economic historians, and that's partly because, um, you know, with the title, I think that when a journal gets it, you know, they say, "Oh, commerce before capitalism," give it to an economic historian, mm-hmm. and um, almost no cultural historians have gotten it for review, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, but the economic historians, and some of them have, you know, good legal training, because in that period, you have to work a lot with legal sources, so people get used to it. Um, nobody's challenged that. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, the economic historians haven't, even though you're quite right, that there's very few numbers in this, and when they're there, they are there to illustrate a point, mm-hmm. you know, not to prove the point. Sure. Um, some of them have complained that they could have used some more numbers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but... Nobody has challenged the evidence itself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, when I began working on that project, I was on a fellowship in Belgium and had access then to all these Ghent sources and talked to a lot of historians at the University of Ghent, which is the Center for Medieval Studies, Social History, and Economic History of that part of the world. And people would say, oh, no, they could buy and sell everything. I mean, they're merchants. And and then I'd say, well, wait a minute, look at this. And then I had, you know, court cases. It wasn't just normative law. In other words, it wasn't just what the statutes or whatever they were said should be done. I had evidence to show what was done. And, uh, you know, it's convincing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: These people had a hard time giving up the idea that an immovable good was immovable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. immovable in an economic sense. Right. And so did that make them, uh, you know, unable to understand that it would be better to buy and sell? Uh, I argued no, that they were fulfilling another logic
0: that mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: made sense.
0: Right. Well, I mean, one thing to point out is that these people, even, even people in a place like Ghent, still lived in an overwhelmingly agricultural world.
1: Yeah, that's oh, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I, mean,
0: I don't think we can kind of conceive of it because this world is gone to us today. But they all had a foot in the countryside to some extent.
1: Well, they relied on production from the countryside yeah. to feed themselves right. and drink
0: themselves. And yeah. they did
1: quite a lot of drinking.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that's absolutely right. And, you know, they made cloth from... Uh, stuff that was produced on, in the countryside, a lot of it locally, but then, of course, a lot imported from England. Yeah. Um, so they were very connected to the agricultural economy, and, and historians, not me, but historians who have studied this kind of thing, have figured that of the GNP of Europe in this, this period, it was 85% agricultural production.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, certainly true. Yes. Uh, so one of the things that was called to mind as I was reading this chapter... Was we actually have an instrument a little bit like this today, and I think most people consider it weird, and that is the trust. Yes. Yeah, the trust. And even, you know, I had a friend who had a trust from her father, and she needed money from the trust. She could not get it. And I said, well, why don't you go to some enterprising somebody and get a loan against it? Yeah. And even that proved impossible. Yeah. So <laughs> somebody had written a drug. Yeah, it was really tight because like, this just not this instrument is not fungible in any way, and that's an odd thing in, a, in, a, in an economy like ours. That thing no, that's is not exactly for sale. Exactly right, and Can't of course, we, yeah.
1: yeah, those are legal solutions. You know that in order for those to work, and, and you, in the 16th century, you start to see things like that. The English were did fascinating stuff with the strict settlement and all those kinds yeah. of things to accomplish those kinds of goals, yeah. and um, in order for those to work, however, you have to have um, solid legal institutions and an enforcement mechanism.
0: Yeah, no, it's really it's really very interesting. So you talk about so this is landed property we talk about here. So in, in a little bit later in the book, in the next chapter, you talk about the way in which this transition from uh, uh, immobile to mobile, slow, uh, not exactly steady, always halting, and and a little bit difficult, affected. Um, other transfers of property, for example, in marriage. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, it's, um, it's a complicated story about how the... Well, two things are going on in that chapter and in the story about marriage. Marriage among the kind of people that I study, which are people that live from commerce, you know, that buy and mm-hmm. sell or produce by commerce, mostly people that live in cities like Ghent. Um, that two things are happening. Number one is... Um, there's this struggle about what's going to be immovable and what's going to be movable and, and to what extent a category of immovable goods needs to be preserved, even if sometimes you can sell your immovable good. right? So there's that going on. Simultaneously, what's going on is the category of movable goods. Which historically and under the the conceptions that grounded the law by which these people operated, movable goods you could do anything you wanted with, right? Mm -hmm. So that, but that category of goods is expanding like mad in a commercial urban economy because, you know, inventories, um, uh, accounts payable, clothing, food, Jewels, um, decorations for a house, furniture, all of these things, which were, by the way, very expensive, uh, were expanding like mad. And an increasing part of the population in cities like Kent owned very little property that was considered immovable. In fact, the bulk of their assets would be movable. Now, okay, so what do you do? How does marital property law work? Because the conception of marital property law throughout the North, including in Ghent, was that when a couple got married, there wasn't the what historians lots of times mistakenly call the dowry, uh, which meant that a woman brought property from her family, which was held for her by her husband. Uh, He could manage it that two of them could live off the income from it, but when he died, the property reverted to her, okay? Mm -hmm. It was a separate account. Now, typically, the conception was that that kind of property was immovable because that's how you could be sure that it kept its value, right? If you have movable goods, say, you know, if you're dowry, and I'm going to tell you in a minute that, again, there wasn't a dowry, but if you're thinking about it as a dowry, if it, were, if it consisted of inventories of cash, of chickens, of sheep, of things like that, they would turn over in mm-hmm. the course of the marriage, and all the sheep would die, and maybe their lambs wouldn't live, or somebody would steal their lambs, or, you know, whatever. And so, you couldn't be sure that the value would hold. Okay. Um... In in the, the part of Europe that I studied, the North, um, mostly unless people wrote a separate document to make it happen, um, there was no dowry in marriage. What happened was both the bride and the groom brought property to the marriage, and it was if it was movable goods, it was joint property owned by both of them, managed by the husband with full authority to manage it any way he wanted, including sell it um but each of them also could bring something that was categorized as immovable and that property uh when the one spouse died the part of his or her property that had been categorized as immovable was supposed to return to his family now that the family was defined as the children born of the marriage. Um, and if there were no children born of the marriage, back to the family from which he had come, typically his parents or his siblings, or her parents or her siblings. Okay, so that's the basis. Now, what happens in Ghent and in lots of cities like Ghent is two things. Number one, the property that um, the couples bring to the marriage is increasingly just movable goods, with a smaller proportion of it being immovable. And number two... Um, They're finding ways slowly over the centuries that I studied to make immovable goods economically movable so they could be sold and then replaced typically by some other property that had that character, Um, but you can imagine the complexities of doing that if the point was to assure that the families from which the spouses came or their direct offspring had a secure source of property to support them in the future, Uh, if you're trading those immovables around, it gets tricky, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, then, do you want to hear about love? Yes,
0: I do. (laughs) Okay.
1: (laughs) One of the arguments that's made about families of this kind is that because they ran a shop together or ran a small business together or even lived in a house that was also a workshop, even if maybe the wife was not directly involved in the workshop, but she was connected to it physically enough, uh, probably in informal ways helped out a lot, etc. A lot of historians have argued that this made people uh, put a lot of emphasis on companionship, on friendship, on cooperation between husband and wife and that it um, kind of reduced gender hierarchy in other words it presaged the modern ideal of the bourgeois family where a husband and wife are partners in life uh, in an equal sense and that they share responsibility they share decision-making they share authority over the children that they have they're mutually obligated to each other to uh, support each other, to love each other, to take care of each other, blah, blah. You know the speech, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Now, the problem with that story, there's some truth in it, but the problem with that story is a lot of things. Number one, demographically, marriages didn't last that long in this period. Um, There are some historians who are very technical demographers who have figured out that the average length of a marriage... Uh, among populations of the kind that I'm talking about was 10 years Hmm. because somebody died. Mm -hmm. Um, And now obviously that varied, you know, when you had periods of plague and disease, it would go way up and then it probably went down in periods where there weren't these plagues and stuff. But the 10 years is kind of an average. Okay, so that's number one. Um, Number two is that there were... um, uh, Connections. Each of the spouses had connections outside the marriage that were sometimes stronger than the connections they had to their spouse. Um, very often, a, a woman would be um, much more closely tied to her natal family emotionally, even in terms of uh, sharing certain kinds of property and income uh, with her natal family. Um, another thing that happened is people remarried at the drop of a hat, uh, so that in the course of a life, a woman uh, had a very, very high chance of having two husbands. Um, a man had a much higher chance of having two wives. And then children would be born of each of those marriages, so that all of a sudden, you know, who inherits what from whom mm-hmm. becomes very complicated. So um then you have the problem that they're living from movable wealth. And as I said earlier, movable wealth turns over. And if you're in a commercial economy, it's at high risk, much higher risk than, well, After the crash of 2008, maybe not at much higher risk, (laughs) but (laughs) at high risk, right, compared to immovable wealth, right, which mostly did, and in the logic, uh, the cultural logic that informed economic decisions in that age, did preserve its wealth, its value over time. Commercial wealth didn't. Now, commercial wealth could collapse. The ship didn't come in. The harvest failed. You know, all those kinds of things. It could also go up, boom. And we have lots of stories from this age of people making fortunes overnight because the ship did come in, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you adjust for that? How do you, when a couple puts their money together, the husband manages it during his life, Um, when he dies, the wife has, it depends on where you are, either half or all of it for her widowhood. And she can take it. Whatever part she gets, in most places it's just half, but in some cities, one of which I did a lot of work on in previous years, she got all of it, she could take it into a new marriage, and she could have children out of that marriage, Mm -hmm. and she could give that to her children. So, the point that I make is there's lots of tensions in that so-called partnership, right, and Mm -hmm. equality. And so, I argue in that chapter that all this rhetoric about love, which coincides with teachings of the church which historically way way back in the beginning of the Christian Church had been against marriage but then finally accepts marriage but it only accepts marriage so that you can have children and so that you don't run around fornicating all over the place Um, but then finally comes to uh, uh, you know develop a rhetoric that marriage is spiritually good Right. Mm-hmm. It helps you live a better life, but it helps you also realize your capacity for love, for devotion, etc. So there's a language of love that's um, coming out of religious discourse, um, and it's, it's infecting the way people talk about marriage, so that people do start talk talk about loving each other. And loving is starting to acquire the meaning not just of dutiful devotion, um, respect, the kinds of things that were once understood as love. And remember, by the way, in this period, just read your Shakespeare, the word love was used. I love my lord, I love my neighbor,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, love did not necessarily have this romantic atta- you know, implication. Okay, but it starts to have that in this period and to be associated with the kind of bond that is supposed to seal the marriage between these people. Okay, my complicated argument is that this language serves to seal the relationship between a man and woman who find themselves Having to, indeed, jointly depend upon and manage wealth that is at high risk and that is likely to change hands over the lifetime of one partner or both partners in many, many ways. And so a marriage that is sealed by an emotional bond beyond the property bond um, strengthens their ideological commitment to the union and to each other. Mm -hmm. And so... It's, it, this is kind of a feminist critique of the ideology of love. Um, feminists who work on the modern period have done a lot of work arguing that, you know, we have this modern romantic idea. People marry because they love each other, which writes out all the social and economic motivations and grounds that that um, govern marriage decisions in our society right Mm -hmm. so they're not saying that people don't feel this kind of attachment to each other um but what we know is you know that the minute that they decide they don't love each other anymore they love somebody else more all the other grounds that have supposedly bound them to each other are exposed and then you have these terrible divorce fights, and mm-hmm. you, you know, and there are the fights about who gets the dog and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So what my chapter was trying to do was to say that this discourse about uh, marrying each other and sharing property because you love each other inverts what's going on. You love each other because you have to
0: hmm. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you're saying <laughs> we, we have this. That well, that's very good. Well. I just, just put it very briefly. Then we have this kind of dichotomy, which at least historians have, uh, throw around. And that is that, that the household at one time was a, in pre modern times, let's put it very generally was an economic unit. It was yes. arranged by two families. And then we have this other notion, the modern family is built on romantic love. And what you're saying yes. is the proto modern family, that is the one built on love was actually still economic.
1: Yes, exact. Thank you very much. I wish I had written that sentence.
0: No, but that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also thinking while I read this chapter, there is a bit of the, you know, the echo or shadow of this is still alive today. That is the attachment to other families, the property attachment. So, for example, I know that um, that if you, uh, when you marry someone, any, uh, let's call them assets, that's what we call them, assets that you bring into the marriage, especially things like uh, inheritance from a parent, Um, are kind of in a probationary status for, I don't know, five or seven or ten years. So if you get divorced in that period, you bring them with you. They're not common property.
1: No, that's right. I mean, these tensions are still with us, (laughs) right? Yeah, right?
0: right. And you can always have a prenup. Yes. (laughs) You
1: know? Yes. <laughs> no, and rich people do that, yeah. right?
0: Right, exactly. And Keep so, you know, no,
1: I, I don't want to say nothing has changed, but in, right. you know, yeah, but it, it's, in it, some way, nothing but it's has It's really changed. just
0: kind of a distant echo of that. And I was also walking around a cemetery. I'm in Northampton, Massachusetts, <laughs> so we have this very old cemetery, the people from the 16th century there. And, and I did notice that uh, when a husband died, usually you just see in the husband's grave, but when the wife is mentioned, uh, her maiden name is always mentioned where the middle name would be. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's always, you know, it's always, you know, Isabel White Smith, and White is her maiden name.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah.
0: interesting. And then that falls out of favor a little bit later, I noticed. I, it, I don't, you know, I'm just, this is just a kind of anecdotal thing. I didn't notice this, though, so it's an interesting connection with the family of birth uh, in marriage. Well,
1: I think it is. I think it is. And, yeah. you know, um, well, naming practices can be very significant in thinking about, you know, how people identify themselves. Yeah. And, you know, how they identify themselves, you know, it obviously has a material base, yeah. but... Um, I
0: also have to tell you, I was my, my training as an early modernist sort of helped. I was walking around that cemetery, and I saw that some women were named Electa. And I'm ah. like, what the hell is that? And then I'm like, oh, they're Calvinists.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, That's.
0: I'm sure that's right. Yeah. I get it now. So all that, all that, years and years of training comes to that. So uh, tell us about gifts. Um, Gifts were a big part of this uh, economy or culture. So tell us about how they were affected by these. These about about this. uh, Again, we don't have the vocabulary for it. I kept wanting to say. Uh, pro-capitalists
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know there's not an easy term you yeah know, I don't
0: know what to call it so anyway tell well, us about I mean, gifts uh,
1: the vigorous market economy yeah, something right, like that yeah. I don't know um, but my gift chapter actually is my favorite chapter um, just because it 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 was such a clear problem that I was addressing, one that a lot of other people had articulated. And the problem was medievalists have generally argued that as the commercial economy or monetized economy expands, people don't exchange by gifts so much, right? Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, the... Traditional and really too stereotypical um, explanation is that the gift economy diminishes to just become a sentimental place, you know, and with very little economic importance. And uh, the real action is in the market economy. Uh, the problem with that is empirical because all you have to do is look at the early modern period, and people were exchanging gifts like mad. And so one of the, actually, this is a bigger problem. One of the problems we have in working in the period that I work in is that historians have too rigidly respected 1500, you know, as a dividing line between medieval and early modern. Mm-hmm. And once you start to cross that boundary, you start to see that, wait a minute, you know, what was really different? You know, in 1600 from 1300, is it it useful to think about there's um, the medieval period ends and then something else begins, right? So the gift problem exposes this exactly. If medievalists had just looked at what was going on in 1650, they could not have possibly maintained that the gift economy disappears, Mm -hmm. right? Um, It exploded. So what's going on? So I just decided not to look at ceremonial or religious um, or ceremonial gifts in the sense of um like patronage you know that you, you, um, an author presents his book to his, um, the duke or the king or whoever he wants to patronize him so that he can continue to produce uh, literary works. Or, you know, musicians were always having patrons and giving gifts of their, um, of their scores and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to avoid that. There's been a lot of wonderful work done on patronage and how it works, and... Um, and I also wanted to avoid just or, or to minimize gifts to the church, on which there's also been a very a lot of work. But that's been understood as measures of um, spiritual intensity or spiritual attachments and sort of removed from the notion that it has something to do with the market, right? Mm-hmm. So what I wanted to look at was gifts in and by people who lived from commerce. And I looked at the gifts that cities made and then at the gifts that people who lived in cities made, both to the church but also to other people. And one of the first things I discovered was that among the kind of people that I studied, um, they gave minor gifts to the church, and most of their gift-giving was to secular people. Um, and that cities spent a huge proportion of their revenues on making gifts. And then that raised the problem, what were they really doing? Were these gifts that were disguised as bribes, as uh, salary in some way, but they were, and this comes back to an earlier part of our conversation, were they too dumb to understand the t- <laughs> salaries, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, or were they just, you know, so corrupt? that they were just doing bribes all the time and they just called them gifts. Now, obviously, this recalls a lot about Western encounters with non-Western cultures in the modern world, right, where um, Westerners are always horrified, you know, trying to do business in certain parts of the world because in their logic, bribes govern the way business works mm-hmm. to, to the detriment of a clean market exchange, right? Right. Right. So, with something like that going on in my period, um, and what I decided um, after studying this and watching who was giving the gifts, to whom they were given, what they were called, what kind of language was used, and under what circumstances they were given, and I wound up arguing that gifts did work, cultural work, that was necessary to support market exchange, which sounds kind of contradictory, but the argument I made was that in this age, market exchange was increasingly anonymous, that in previous cultures and still going on in this culture, market exchange had been a face-to-face transaction between people who either knew each other, and if you're in small places, which most places were very small, people didn't know each other. If they didn't know each other, you recognized each other. In other words, you knew where that person came from, who that person's family was, how that person was connected to the world in which you lived. Um, market exchange was um, uh, conceptualized as and to a large extent existed as a place, right, that you went to the market mm-hmm. and you bought and sold from people you knew or recognized um, you if, lots of times you remind food, you knew who had produced it. The people who had produced it were selling it. They were the peasants who were coming in from the countryside and were selling their surplus or something like that. Uh, what's happening in the period I studied, particularly in the kinds of places I studied, is more and more you didn't know where the goods came from. You had a name, but it meant nothing to you. You and I talked earlier about Muscovy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, nobody even could put it on a map. You know? <laughs> Um, they didn't have maps. Could, you know, how <laughs> right. people ever found Muscovy, right. I don't know. Yeah. Because if you look at the maps of that period, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. So, um There's there's that problem where the goods come from, and so there are all these and a wonderful work done by people who are more really cultural historians, talking about the narratives about where goods came from, Uh, and particularly when you start to get goods from the East and from Africa and from uh, you know the Near East, and then lots of them are coming from the Indian Ocean through the Near East. Um, Europeans have the most fantastic stories about how they were produced, where they came from, etc., so there's that problem. Then there's the problem, credit instruments that are really um, uh, amazingly sophisticated start to be developed to make it possible to buy in one place with one kind of currency and pay in a distant place with another kind of currency through three or four intermediaries, only the first one of which you've even met. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I, the term I used was commerce becomes more and more anonymous. Mm-hmm. You don't know who you're dealing with. You don't have mechanisms for trusting the provenance or the quality of the goods that come. And remember, this is a world in which there were not centralized political institutions that could make those guarantees for you or could uh, you know, prosecute violations of whatever the standard thing was. That's why you had hansas and guilds and things like that that tried to provide those kinds of securities, right? Mm-hmm. But they operated within their narrow world, which might be, in the case of a Hansa, geographically spread out, but limited to only a certain number of people. So um, my argument was that It was very hard to trust either the people or the goods or the money that was being used in market exchange. Gift exchange operated by a different logic. A gift was from a known person to a known person or institution, and they were made publicly. Uh, And public was the big key for me to understand what I think was going on, is... um, Lots of them were actually presented publicly in person, you know, kneeling, giving the gift to people. But other ways of making it public were to record it in words, in a document, um, to do it as part of some ceremonial pro- uh, project in which maybe, you know, it was not the face to face giving the gift, but it was some kind of ritualized moment of gift exchange. Um, And what that does is establish the personal connection between the giver and the receiver. Uh, And the argument I wound up making was it's the source of public honor. That honor was defined as not an internalized sense of whether you're a good or bad person, but the way the world judges you as an honorable or dishonorable person and to be able to give a gift to somebody who is recognized as honorable or to an institution that is recognized as honorable confers honor on you to receive a gift from somebody who's considered honorable or is an honorable institution confers honor on you but it only does that conferral either way if other people see it Mm -hmm. know that it happened and so That's why gift exchange remains so important. It provided not just a way of exchange that um, was uh, uh, legitimate and because visible between people known, but it also established the integrity of the people who were then simultaneously dealing in the market. Somebody, for example, who had been given a gift in some semi or you know, even real public way by, let's say, an alderman of a city had given a, uh, you know, a silver bowl to a merchant from another city who had arrived in the city and was setting up business. That establishes that man's credit in the city
0: mm-hmm.
1: and allows him then to buy and sell on credit. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm
1: with with men in the city mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's my argument
0: yeah well i mean again it, it yeah, i think it would benefit the listeners to remind them that we in in this uh, we'll talk about this when we talk about cemetery laws but in, in this context uh, honor was overwhelmingly still defined this is in the, in the european context by title by your relationship yes. to the crown that's yes. what honor was and and so it, i can see how these really merchants were, were thinking to themselves well i'm doing something that's kind of disreputable I mean, and this is the way Christy yes. you know, so thought about it. And, you know, even then it was associated with Jews. So this yeah. is not good. Uh, yeah. So how do I get honor? And, you know, how do I actually get, how, how can I do this? And, and actually, it's funny because, th- again, there are echoes of this today um, when corporations and people in corporations give big piles of cash to, um, you know, this or that philanthropy.
1: No, that's exactly right. And they want to be
0: named. <laughs> yeah, they definitely want to be named. I mean, go named. to the
1: ballet and look at the back. I mean, half of the program is telling right. you they right. gave money for the dancers. Right, right, right. Or
0: NPR is the great example of that. You know, they, they sell yeah. these. What are basically advertisements in order to make corporations, Archer Daniels Midland, look, look public spirited? Because, yeah, you know, exactly. you kind of vaguely have the idea that they're doing something a little bit disruptive. You don't know what they're doing exactly. You don't know where their products come from. And I really like that part because that's also pure marks, it's the magic of the commodity. You, know, you get it, and you, you don't know where it comes from. You have no idea. Whereas before, you know, you actually knew the person that made it, you know, where it came from this kind of stuff. But like, now you just have no idea where it comes from. So it takes a certain leap of faith just to enter into this relationship. Um, But now you have all these abstractions and, and things start to, you know, you need a way to build a kind of honor out of out of, out of out of something that's kind of dishonorable.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. right,
0: exactly. Um, that's that's really, really really, very interesting. Well let's, let's go on to talk about sumptuary laws. I always wondered about those. Um, <laughs> we don't have them anymore, as you can tell.
1: <laughs> right. Well, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a guy who's very influenced by Foucault that argues that we do. It's just moved from the visible, you know, dress and all that kind of stuff to government thinks it's their job to tell us not to smoke and all that kind of stuff. All right, sure. Yeah, but, you know, there's an economic logic to that. The government winds up paying for people who are sick because they smoke, you know. So uh, that's not the case with sumptuary legislation. Yeah, sumptuary legislation was maybe the best example of how stupid were these people. Yeah. And you know, by the 18th century, all the liberal—you um, know—the 18th century is the beginning of a real liberal um, discourse. You know about what constitutes citizenship, a good government, uh, a good economy, all that. Um, you know, they always use sumptuary legislation as the as, to stand in for what was bad about the pre-modern economy. Right, that right? these people really did not know what they were doing. Um, There are many, many problems with the way sumptuary legislation, in my view, has been analyzed, because it's been argued mostly that it was all about rank, that it was um, elites of some kind, usually an unspecified kind, trying to keep, and the classic line is, butchers' wives in their place. Um, so And there is legislation that said butchers' wives can't <laughs> wear pearls, they can't wear emeralds, you know, blah, blah, blah. Butchers, by the way, were a very elite trade, and they tended to be rich yeah. um, because meat was so expensive and blah, blah, blah. So um, uh, it, the problem with that argument is two. Number one, if you read the legislation, only some of it is about rank. Number two, um, the legislators we sometimes traditional at least, like we have kings and people like that, you know, issuing some sort of legislation. Meanwhile, they're, of course, buying all the stuff. Um, but a lot of the legislators were the very people who made their living making, importing, and selling the dresses, the jewels, the trimmings, the, you know, all the stuff that the legislation told people they couldn't wear. Mm-hmm. So, again, are these people completely mad what is the logic that governed um, their decision that somehow dress, and it's overwhelmingly dress, that has to be regulated? Well, another argument that people made was it was luxury consumption. People weren't allowed to have luxuries. Well, the problem was there's almost no legislation that treats any other kind of luxury. I mean, not horses, not armor, not windows. Windows were very, very expensive. Um you know, not hollow wear, not silver, not coin, not, you know, those things. It was dress or displays of dress in public ceremonies. And so a lot of the legislation was also about weddings and funerals that were very public events. Um, but all that legislation included as part of its regulation about what you can eat at a wedding or how many people can come, regulations about uh, what you can wear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, what I did was read the legislation and compare from different parts of Europe. I did not read it all. Uh, There's still a lot in the archives that nobody's worked on. Um, And so I was dependent on mostly what had been published, you know, from various archives all over Europe, and saw that there were lots of different kinds of arguments that were being made for what was the matter with... Um, wearing clothes of a certain kind. Some of it was about rank. A lot of it was about how much it cost and that it deprived the realm of money because they were imported goods. So if you bought feathers or something, you were sending money to the place that the peacock's crew, um and not spending it on stuff made in the city. So mm-hmm. there was things like that. But then there was an awful lot about just propriety both about gender definitions and that women should dress like women and men should dress like men, but then also about the sexualized body, that there were certain parts of the body that were supposed to be on display that shouldn't be on display, um, that women shouldn't show their bosoms, that they should cover their heads, um, that uh, men shouldn't, you know, we're entering the period of the doublet and the piece. That, that those things are scandalous. I mean, meanwhile, everybody's got them, you mm-hmm. know, that can afford them. So there's a, a lot of different things um, going on, and what I decided, um, drawing on literature that operated in a different cultural register, that the anxiety here was about the relationship between what you see and what is. Um, so this gets complicated. The easy way to think about it is that medieval people, i.e. the people that broke the sumptuary legislation, still thought that there was a direct relationship between the outside and the inside, that they had what some scholars have called a very materialist version of reality. Uh, one of the places where discussions of this kind took place was in uh, the- theology. Christology, really, the study of uh, religion in the Christian Church, um, where there had been a big, long argument about whether the Eucharist, in other words, the host, was in fact an embodiment of God, of Christ, or was a symbol? And the Catholic Church, by the 13th century, had decided that it was what it looked like. It was the body of Christ. Um, now, The problem with that was, the minute that was theologically, you know, supposedly doctrine, so that you were supposed to believe this was the body of Christ, and you probably do, and maybe your listeners know something about this, becomes a huge debate, you know, through the Reformation, Mm -hmm. um, about just what the relationship is uh, between the Eucharist and the divine. Um, It remained a problem in Catholic culture, too, because once you make that assertion and say, yes, it is, then the question becomes more urgent, well, how is it? How does it work? When does it become the body? Um, Is it only the body for a moment? What, What role does the priest have in making it the body? What role does the believer have? Do you have to be a true believer? You know, blah, blah, blah. And so attention gets focused on the problem of this cultural equation. Just how does it work? Um, As I said, this becomes a huge problem through the Reformation. And the Protestants, in the end, as you know, decide, A, that's not the body of Christ. It's at best a symbol. But even within Protestant worship, there was a huge debate. Luther was very close to saying it is. Uh, Calvin and Bucher and some of the other guys said, no, no, it's just a symbol. In the end, Protestants wind up saying it's just a symbol. It took them a long time to get to that consensus. And in the meantime, they went around in certain parts of Europe, most famously in the Low Countries where I work, uh, burning images of all kinds, you know, saints' pictures and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And you know, claiming that these are just, you know, the evil manifestations of a a mistaken faith, etc. I interpreted that not so much as a firm belief on their part that these symbols meant nothing, but as an effort to eradicate symbols that might mean something, if that Mm -hmm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So something like that, I think happened with respect to dress what had happened was dress had long served Europeans as a marker of status no question about it Um, the elites not only dressed in certain ways and I have a part of the chapter that talks about changes in style among aristocratic dressers um, but always there was a distinctive aristocratic dress But aside from the style, um, there were also, they had the materials. They could put fur on their gowns, or the fur they put on was ermine and not squirrel, which was available in Europe. Ermine had to be imported. They were the people that wore jewels around their necks and on their heads and, you know, on and on. What happens with the commercial revolution is that there's more and more and more of that stuff floating around. There are new people who can buy it. This goes back to the argument about rank. That most people have landed on in trying to explain sumptuary legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, there were um, then what happened, particularly by the 15th century, is um, artisans learn to fake expensive stuff. Just like today, by the way, you know you can buy velvet. It's not velvet, but it looks just as good, and who would know? And so that's starting to happen in this period. So. People are forced to think about, oh, my goodness, what does this mean? You know, does dressing up in a certain way mean anything anymore? What does it mean? And so then I looked at cultural sources, stories, plays, um, moralist discourse, um, uh, just chatter uh, that showed that people were really worried about this. They didn't know what to make of it. And so my argument became not that medieval people had said, oh, yes, you are exactly what you wear. It was that in this period, they had to interrogate whether you were what you wore. And that that caused a real cultural crisis in which was reflected in this legislation from the top down that was trying to figure it out. And that's why you had so many different kinds of issuers, from kings all the way down to aldermen of tiny cities, um, that different different arguments were made by why it's necessary, that it was somehow associated in the minds of legislators and presumably in the citizenry, um, that it had to do with a good society, a good society dressed in a certain way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so my argument was that it had to do with there was a logic. The logic was that they that they were forced to interrogate a kind of easy cultural equation that had never had to be interrogated before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it had to do with ideas about governmentality, what mm-hmm. constituted good government. So mm-hmm. there, that's the
0: argument. And, and it's funny how the, the um, some actually in this part of the country the, so radical Protestants um, kind of worked this out in a radical way and they uh, adopted plain dress yes <laughs> they would not have to yeah. worry about it at all <laughs> no that's
1: exactly right and you know go to a Calvinist church I mean there are even some in New York but you know go to go to Holland and look at the Calvinist churches they're just white there's nothing there man yeah yep.
0: yep. yeah plain dress Yeah, plain dress plain church is the whole thing yeah, yeah. No, I, I grew up in Holy Cross Lutheran Church and it had a cross Yes, that was it? Exactly. <laughs> had exactly. a, sometimes they had a little drape over the cross. I don't yeah. know what the drape was about, but was, the drape thing was there. Yeah, So it was very plain. You're like We're just not going to deal with that question. We just put that yeah. question aside. That's very good. Well, I'm sorry to say that we've run out of time. It's been okay. so interesting talking to you. We've been talking with uh, Martha Hall about her book, Commerce Before Capitalism in Europe, 1300 to 1600. It's a fascinating book. I hope people go buy it. Martha, let me ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what are you working on now?
1: I'm working among on credit relations among ordinary people in one of the big towns in Flanders in the late Middle Ages.
0: Mm-hmm. Book article both.
1: Well, it's going to be you know start as an article. It's technically very very complicated. The sources yes. are impossible. You know the usual problem. Well, um, so it's going to start as a big article. There'll, there'll be a small one in French and then a bigger one in English. And then I don't know whether I'm going to continue it into a book or not. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure out how to deepen the source base beyond what I've got right
0: now. Well, at least you have sources. You know us, we people. Who, know. those of us who work on Muscovy, we're just looking at the same thing over and over again, and it's kind of hard. So anyway, uh, I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I want to thank everybody for tuning into this podcast, but I want to thank Martha Howell uh, specifically and especially for being on the show. Thank you, Martha.
1: Thank you.
0: All right, bye-bye. Bye.